Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Film, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Gary Betchinson, Senior Lecturer in Film Studies at Lancaster University, United Kingdom. He is Editor of Asian Cinema, Directory of World Cinema, China, and author with Richard Rushton of What is Film Theory? An Introduction to Contemporary Debates. Hello, Dr. Betinson, and welcome to New Books in Film. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about your new book, The Sensuous Cinema of Wong Kar Wai, Film Poetics and the Aesthetic of Disturbance, published by the Hong Kong University Press in 2014. Uh, for some years, this book has been appealing not only to all who are interested in authorship and aesthetics in film studies, but also to scholars in Asian studies, media and cultural studies, and to anyone with an interest in Hong Kong cinema in general, and Wong's films in particular. Our audience is surely aware that the widely acclaimed films of Wong Kar Wai are characterized by their sumptuous, yet complex visual and sonic style. Well, this monographic study of Wong's filmmaking techniques uses a poetics approach to examine how form, music, narration, characterization, genre, and other artistic elements work together to produce certain effects on audiences. Dr. Bettinson argues that Wong's films are permeated by an aesthetic of sensuousness and disturbance achieved through techniques such as narrative interruptions, facial masking, opaque cuts, and other complex strategies. The effect is to jolt the viewer out of complete aesthetic absorption. Each of the chapters focuses on a single aspect of Wong's filmmaking. The book also discusses Wong's influence on other filmmakers in Hong Kong and around the world. Obviously, uh, Dr. Bettinson, I'm really excited to have this interview and thus offer our audience a close outlook of this insightful work. Before we start to talk about it, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the previous work you have been doing, Dr. Bettinson? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, as you say, uh, I'm a lecturer in film studies at Lancaster University, which is in the northwest of uh, England. And uh, I've been teaching here for about 15 years. The time has really zoomed by. And um, I teach a course to uh, final year undergraduate students and MA students, master students on contemporary Hong Kong cinema. Um, as you said, I'm a co-editor with, with Tan C. Cam of uh, the Asian Cinema Film Journal. And I've been doing that for the last almost 10 years, I think, at this stage. And um, 
I've co-edited a couple of anthologies uh, on Chinese and Hong Kong cinema, uh, The Poetics of Chinese Cinema with James Udden and Hong Kong Horror Cinema with uh, Daniel Martin. And um, I also research American cinema as well, but uh, I guess my, my main specialism is, is Hong Kong cinema in particular, Chinese and Asian cinema more, more generally. Now, um, how did you become interested in the theme of the sensuous cinema of Wong Kang Wai? And how did you start to mm. work on this book? Um, could you please tell us about the genesis and the process behind this work? Sure. Well, I can go way back, <laughs> if you like. Uh, mm -hmm. I first discovered uh, Wong Kang Wai in the mid-1990s, um, you know, as a kind of cinephile really and as an, an undergraduate film student i remember uh quentin tarantino's uh distribution label rolling thunder released chunking express on a vhs cassette and so I, i saw that and in the same period i saw uh days of being wild and happy together on video um, and then fallen angels and as tears go by shortly after that Ashes of Time, which is the other film that Wong made in that period, uh, was, a, was more elusive. It wasn't accessible for some reason to Western viewers at the time. Um, so that film wouldn't show up on home video for, for some years. But um, anyhow, I, I got interested in Hong Kong cinema in general in the 1990s um, with the release of films from many Asian territories, not just Hong Kong. Um, again, on video cassette in England. Um, and because there was a real explosion of Asian cinema uh, that was in full swing um, and had begun to reach international audiences at that time. So you had um, Kitano Takeshi's gangster films, his Yakuza, uh, sort of laconic gangster films from Japan, and uh, as well as J-horror, of course, uh, films like Ring and The Grudge were coming over to us in, in England and the West. From mainland China, there was, um, we, we were getting films by um, Chun Kai-ge and Zhang Yimo, I guess most famously Farewell My Concubine and uh, Race of the Red Lantern, and uh, Jai Junker as well. Um, in Taiwan, there was Ho Xiao Shen and uh, Siming Lang and Edward Yang. Uh, South, well, the South Korean renaissance hadn't quite begun yet, hadn't quite happened, but that that industry was on the brink of a of a you know a major resurgence as well. And from Hong Kong, there were John Woo's gunplay sagas, the so-called heroic bloodshed films, uh, some of which were released theatrically in cinemas here as well as on video cassette, like The Killer and, and Hard Boiled. Um, there were films by Choi Hark, the martial arts sagas like. Once Upon a Time in China series, Jet Li. Uh, Jackie Chan movies, of course, um, and, uh, and other action films by people like Ringo Lam, Corey Yearn, directors like that. Um, but my own point of entry into, into Hong Kong film was not the action genres, I think, which is often the point of entry for many, I think, researchers and, and fans of Hong Kong cinema, but through the art films and the, and the independent movies, of the period. Um, so Wong Kar Wai's films were part of that trend, obviously. Um, but I, I was also able to see, um, again, on, on you know, video release, um, a, a film called K Kitchen by Yim Ho, which is kind of Hong Kong art film. Uh, Fruit Chan's Made in Hong Kong, uh, which was probably, which 
is still today probably Hong Kong's most famous indie movie, uh, and other less commercial, less uh, mainstream films. And so, you know, taking all of this together, this swirl of activity, um, I very quickly got uh, seduced uh, by the contemporary Asian uh, cinema scene. Um, and I should add just, you know, just for context, finally, that, that this was also the era of the so-called Asian invasion, uh, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, Hollywood studios were were hiring successful directors from Hong Kong and other Asian territories as well to make American films. Um, so, and, and some of these directors, many of them came from the action genres, Many of them cut their teeth on, you know, Jean-Claude Van, da- Van Damme movies. <laughs> it was, it was, I guess that was like their rite of passage, you know, mm-hmm. to prove that they could uh, adapt to the American system, that they could refresh and reinvigorate the formulaic Hollywood action genre, you know, by infusing it with the, the Hong Kong style, the Hong Kong touch. Um, John Woo made one of those Van Damme movies, subsequently directed uh, Broken Arrow Face Off, Mission Impossible 2 and, you know, was probably the most successful, commercially successful of the, the, the filmmakers that migrated to Hollywood. But Choi Hark, Ronnie Yu, um, Ringo Lam and others also began making Hollywood movies, uh, action films as well. Yun Wo Ping, who's a Hong Kong action choreographer, was uh, recruited to, to supervise the martial arts sequences, devise those sequences for The Matrix. Um, Ang Lee, you know, from Taiwan, <laughs> came over to uh, to Hollywood in the same period as well. Um, even Takeshi Kitano from Japan, you know, would soon make Yakuza films in Los Angeles, or a Yakuza film in, in Los Angeles. Um, so it seemed in that moment that um, Asian cinema was everywhere <laughs> in Western culture all of a sudden. And Wong Kar Wai, I think, was, um, was, was one of those filmmakers at the vanguard of, of this trend you know he he was widely embraced as one of the most significant new auteurs not only um in hong kong cinema but in world cinema at large and um he's been able to maintain that status to this very day you know even though he's not quite as prolific as he once was so uh this is a long story i'm sorry but i ended up writing my phd thesis on Wong Kar Wai as a kind of auteur study and a neo-formalist analysis or a poetics analysis of Wong's films. Uh, that I completed that in 2006. So that project encompasses all of Wong's films up to and including 2046. And then after that, uh, I, got my, I got the job here at Lancaster, took on other tasks, other research projects. I wanted a little bit of a hiatus from Wong Kar Wai in terms at least of writing about him. Uh, so I, I didn't turn to the, to the book until a, a few years later. I think I was kind of galvanized by the release of The Grandmaster in 2013, and that kind of gave me a renewed impetus to return to the thesis. I actually rewrote the thesis from scratch for the purposes of making it into a book, but I, I retained the basic format, so the, the, the basic structure of the chapters was, was, was basically the same. And, um, and there we have it. That was the book. It came out, as you say, in 2014. So it's not exactly new <laughs> anymore. <laughs> But uh, it's new to some people, at least. <laughs> well, that's a great story. Well, let's turn now to the uh, content of the book. Um, the first chapter, chapter one, is uh, titled Wong Kar Wai and the Poetics of Hong Kong Cinema. Well, who is Wong Kar Wai? 
Could you provide a brief sketch of both the biography and filmography of this Hong, Kong, Hong Kongese filmmaker, please? Sure. Um, well, he was born in Shanghai in 1958. Um, he moved to Hong Kong at the age of five. Um, jumped to, you know, his young adult life. He, he, his professional life in, in film and television, he started out as a, as a, as a screenwriter of uh, soap operas and TV serials. Graduated to uh, film screenwriting for a studio called Cinema City, which is a, an independent film studio, but nonetheless one of the major film studios operating in Hong Kong during the 80s. Uh, his first film as, as a director was called As Tears Go By, and that was uh, released in 1988. And that was a kind of John Woo-esque <laughs> heroic bloodshed film, right? which basically is a, uh, uh, a term used to describe gunplay action, usually organized around triad fraternities, right? which is the sort of the Hong Kong mafia, if you like. Um, that film was so that was a fairly mainstream production. It, it, it showed glimpses, perhaps more, more than glimpses, of, of Wong Kar, what would become known as Wong Kar Wai's kind of distinctive style. But nonetheless, it was a mainstream commercial genre exercise. Um, a couple of years later, he released a film called Days of Being Wild, and that's very much where you know the Wong Kar Wai we know and love uh, is you know gets started and is recognized. Uh, but the film was not. It was very expensive to make, very costly, and it was not a financial success. It was not a blockbuster hit, so a box office hit. So um, he, almost from the start, Wong Kar Wai gained a reputation for um, overspending, going over budget, <laughs> being tardy, you know, not heeding deadlines, uh, um, uh, being profligate, wasteful, shooting a lot of footage that ends up on the cutting room floor, Um, and, but nonetheless, you know, counter, counterposing that reputation, critics really, uh, generally speaking, admired the film and praised it very highly. And, uh, it marked him out as a distinctive, um, voice, um, on the, on the Hong Kong filmmaking scene. No one else had made a film quite like Days of Being Wild, uh, at that time. And, um, he then made a film called Ashes of Time, which was another, this was 1994. This was a swordplay film, historical swordplay or wuxia, again, sword fighting film. Uh, again, it, it, the production rolled on for a long time. It's very expensive to shoot. Um, so his reputation as being a, as a, as a, a kind of wastrel uh, is, is growing. But in the same year, he releases perhaps, perhaps his most famous film in the West, or at least one of them, Chunking Express. That film was shot very fast and very cheap, and it, and it was financially profitable, and it was a success around the world. As I mentioned earlier, Quentin Tarantino um, was its kind of patron on the international stage and was responsible for introducing it to, to Western audiences. Um, he also made Fallen Angels, which is a kind of companion film to Chunking Express. Happy Together, uh, one prize at Cannes, Cannes Film Festival, Best Director for Wong Kar Wai. So again, that was another step forward in terms of his visibility on the international stage. Um, and In the Mood for Love in 2000 was a kind of culmination of this run of, of really, uh, I think, terrific films, but certainly um, well-regarded, well-received films. Um, uh, in the Mood for Love, 
was um, again, it's probably uh, it may be the film for which Wong is best known around the world. Um, it, it was uh, included in Sight and Sounds what, 2012 poll, I think, of the greatest films ever made uh, in the top 25 on that list. Um, and he continued making films after that, but he became less productive for whatever reason. Uh, he seemed to be more indecisive. So he would toy with projects and abandon them. That became a kind of uh, running theme. He made 2046, which was a sort of sequel to In the Mood for Love. He went to America in 2007 to try his hand at, at Hollywood filmmaking and made a movie called My Blueberry Nights, which was not successful critically or commercially. That's his one one venture into the into the into the American uh, filmmaking system. He returned to Hong Kong or to China and uh, directed The Grand Master, which is a kind of kung fu biopic in 2013, and that was a success, generally speaking. Um, and that's his last film. Apparently, he's at work. He's always at work on something, <laughs> but we're still waiting for his next next feature film. So that was what eight years ago now. So we're overdue a new Wong Kar Wai film, I think. Uh, according to your view, what is the place Wong's filmography occupies in the whole Hong Kong cinema? Hmm. It's a good question. Well, it's a difficult question to answer because, I mean, on the one hand, you can say, well, at least, at least two or three of his films make their way onto the list of, of Hong Kong's greatest films ever made, right? The greatest films that have ever come out of that territory, and that's for by that's lists composed by Hong Kong critics themselves. So he's embraced by the critical firmament at home. He's not always embraced by the audiences at home. He's not he's not wildly popular among the Hong Kong audience, which is interesting. He has much more success, you know, with international audiences on the festival circuit and on the art cinema circuits and so on. Um, so you can say, well, Days of Being Wild, Chunking Express, probably Happy Together, and In the Mood for Love usually, usually are uh, uh, accepted and embraced by um, the film community in Hong Kong as great examples of Hong Kong cinema. But at the same time, there are always debates whirling around Wong Kar Wai about whether or not he is a, a bona fide Hong Kong filmmaker or not, right? Because in many ways, he's not typical. In some respects, he is. In some ways, he is typical of, of the way Hong Kong filmmakers make their films and the types of films they make. But in, uh, in other ways, he's, 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 um, he uh, pursues impulses that don't dovetail with the, what we would think of as uh, the Hong Kong trademark. Um, and um, some people say, well, you know, he's basically a uh, a, he, he's a greater China filmmaker, perhaps. He gets a lot of his funding these days from the mainland. But again, that's not entirely untypical uh, of Hong Kong filmmakers these days because those two industries, Hong Kong and mainland Chinese industries, have become increasingly inter, into, uh, interlinked over recent years since the handover. So it's, it's a difficult question to answer. You know, Some people want to, want to kind of disown him as a Hong Kong filmmaker and say, well, he's not really a part of our, of our filmmaking community. And others are, are proud of him and of his success on the international stage. Well, well, I was just going to say, I think from an international perspective, I think that he is one of the more visible Hong Kong filmmakers, right? For people who aren't from China, not living in China, aren't, aren't from Hong Kong. 
uh, when I think of Hong Kong cinema, he's probably one of the first directors that springs to mind. You know. Well, um, the book's first chapter um, provides a, the um, theoretical framework, right? Uh, could you please give us um, a, a general view of this framework? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the, the book has a kind of uh, polemical <laughs> dimension to it. Uh, so it's fairly critical of some of the theoretical perspectives that have been brought to bear on, on Wong's films. Um, what uh, David Baldwell and Noel Carroll have called grand theory. So there are various types of grand theories that have um, uh, that have often uh, been used to elucidate Wong Kar Wai's cinema. Um, the most common one, I would say, is culturalism or the cultural studies perspective. And uh, I, I offer a critique of that approach in the introduction, in the first chapter. Um, just very briefly, um, I, I sort of criticized the approach for adopting a... Um, a top-down reading of, of his films, of Wong Kar Wai's films, sort of mapping a priori concepts or meanings onto the films. Um, and that, um, you know, that, that results in cookie-cutter readings, right, repetitive readings, that the films are all shown or claimed to be expressive of the same thing, uh, which might be some kind of... Uh, Uh, reflection of of um, Hong Kong as a kind of collective populace, right? The idea that uh, the films reflect social anxieties or social attitudes or, you know, the wider social consciousness, specifically in relation to the 1997 handover. So many of these, the culturalist critics... I'll read Wong Kar Wai's films as as um, allegories of of the of the handover from from Britain to China, um, and I suggest, well, you know, this doesn't always contribute new knowledge or or, and it doesn't always enhance our understanding of the films because it does tend to produce repetitive readings. It tends to homogenize both. Um, the, the Hong Kong society at large and the films at hand, right? They all seem to be saying the same thing according to this perspective. So in to instead of top-down theorizing, um, I'm advocating a bottom-up bottom -up analysis of, of Wong's cinema. Um, so in particular, I mentioned David Baldwell earlier. I appeal to his um, approach of the, uh, what he calls historical poetics, Uh, which focuses centrally on, I guess, four main uh, emphases. So uh, one of which is overarching form, the artworks or the film's large-scale construction, right, its formal composition. Uh, secondly, stylistics, so techniques of visual and sonic design. Third, spectatorial activity, the viewer's activity, right, the, the, the viewer's perceptual, cognitive and emotional uptake response to the films um, and finally and broadly historical poetic so for example the his, the, considering the historical context in which the films were produced and consumed um, and then finally there is a comparative dimension to this approach as well because um, Baldwell um, has uh, has 
written about what he calls transcultural <laughs> poetics, right? So that means mm-hmm. involve that, that involves thinking about well, how Wong Kar Wai's films relate to other traditions of film form and style, some of which might be local traditions from within Hong Kong itself, contemporary Hong Kong or past. Uh, you know, earlier eras of Hong Kong filmmaking. Some might be pan-Asian traditions from other um, cinemas in Taiwan or South Korea or mainland China, for example. And some might be traditions uh, deriving from the international uh, film centres, right? So the European art cinema, for example, or Hollywood. So it involves a comparative, uh, a degree of comparative work as well. Well, I'll just add that Culturalism, the cultural studies approach, tends to fixate on what films mean, whereas poetics is more immediately concerned with asking how films are made, um, why they have been made the way they have, and what effects, what kinds of effects they engender on the spectator. And it also, it's an approach that also gives attention to the craft practices of the filmmakers, as to how they make their films, um, and the craft practices of the industry in which they work as well, the sort of broader conventions or uh, work methods that they, to some extent, um, inherit and adopt. Uh, in a key passage, uh, you write, I certainly do not deny that one's films are highly sensuous, that they are innovative or that they engage with social issues, but I do attempt a more nuanced account of these features than the constructed legend provides. And, and then you say, um, I also contest the tacit and pervasive critical assumption that Wong's films are properly understood, best understood, as cultural allegory, more than their cultural value and artistic merit stems precisely from their embedded social meanings This assumption underlies what I call the culturalist approach to one cinema. Um, could you please describe uh, uh, more this culturalist approach to one cinema? Um, yes. Well, I mean, in a way, I've sort of touched on it um, in terms of the broad, uh, what would you say, consequences of of the approach that it tends to be repetitive. It tends to focus a lot on identity, um, cultural identity, but that is often defined in very broad and baggy and fuzzy ways, right? It's not very well, it's not very clearly defined. So I think that's, there's a hermeneutic preoccupation with the notion of identity, but the notion of identity isn't always clear and it becomes a kind of um, catch-all assumption that gets repeated ad infinitum. Um, and I guess the other key dimension to this approach is uh, reflectionism. This is another Baldwell term, but the, 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 the claim that, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, the films more or less straightforwardly reflect whatever is purportedly going on in society, right? And that has a homogenizing um, It has it makes homogenizing assumptions about what's happening in society for one thing, because it suggests that everybody thinks and feels the same way about a particular historical situation. In this case, usually the, the, the critics are writing about 1997 handover, 
And in fact, there was a, there was a diversity of opinion, of course, about that event. Some people were trepidatious mm-hmm. about Hong Kong being handed back to mainland China and all of that, you know, all of the fears mm-hmm. of censorship and interference of that 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 held in prospect. Um, but some were were positive about it and optimistic. Um, but it also means, as I said earlier, that the films tend to be the, the claim is repetitive because the critic is always saying, "Well, the films reflect." The society, the social attitudes, and anxieties, and so when I said that we don't really learn anything new, that's the main reason why I said that because the same conclusion is known in advance. It's kind of it's just why it's an a priori conclusion. It's already predetermined before the critic even needs to analyze the films. So why why analyze the films <laughs> if you already know what they you you already think you know what they're saying? So that's the sort of top down approach that I'm resistant to. Um, and that's why I advocate following Baldwell and others, other poeticians. Um, I advocate a, a bottom-up approach. I try and I try to make it clear, however, that I'm not I'm not setting out to dismiss culturalism altogether, mm-hmm. or to say that critics that have taken the culturalist perspective mm-hmm. are, are necessarily wrong-headed or that the work is not valuable. I'm not saying that. I think there have been some really insightful and informative uh, mm-hmm. pieces on Wong Cinema and on other Hong Kong films that have taken this approach. But it, all, it comes down to the kinds of questions that the critic is asking. S- certain questions might be um, best illuminated by the culturalist perspective, but other questions might not be. And I don't mm-hmm. think the culturalist, culturalism suits every research inquiry. So it's, it suits some better than others. So what I try to do in the introduction, and I repeat, repeat it in the conclusion, <laughs> just to make sure that people get the <laughs> message, is that uh, um, I think that theoretically, in principle, culturalism could function profitably in concert with poetics, right? Provided that... Um, its methodological weaknesses, which I've sort of sketched here, can be scrupulously avoided, right? The, the critic doesn't fall into the same old trap of repeating the same conclusions over and over and knowing what the conclusion is in advance of the film analysis. Does that help clarify uh, the culturist oh, yeah, sure. approach and my, my take on it? Okay, great. Well... Um, could you please tell us about um, Boardwell's transcultural poetics and why did you uh, consider it was um, the best option, the best conceptual framework for studying one's filmography? Well, I mean, I've sort of sk- I've outlined the reasons why I think poetics is valuable because of its bottom bottom up approach. I think a comparative a comparative perspective is justified in Wong's case because he is, like I said before, yes, there are respects in which he's a Hong Kong filmmaker, but he's also a cinephile and he's drawing on influences from all over the world, you know, cinematic influences. He's, he's, I guess a lot of viewers and critics would see fairly quickly that he's influenced by Jean-Luc Godard and the French New Wave filmmakers, I think Truffaut as well, actually, Uh, but also Michelangelo Antonioni, He's influenced by Sergio Leone. He's influenced by Scorsese, right? So in a way, I think you could say he's inviting the comparison with uh, uh, the, the transcultural comparison, right, with with uh, films and filmmakers from other industries around the world. Um, you could, or we could say that, yes, that's that's something peculiar to Wong Kar Wai, 
On the other hand, you know, it, this is also one respect in which he typifies uh, Hong Kong cinema and Hong Kong filmmakers because, you know, as you know, Hong Kong itself is a kind of melting pot of cultural influences and it absorbs influences from all over the world, not just other Asian territories and not just Great Britain, uh, which, you know, colonised it for many years. So... Um, <laughs> I think I would suggest, you know, I go so far as to suggest that the transcultural perspective is a is appropriate to uh, analysis of of Hong Kong cinema more broadly, not just Wong Kar Wai, for that reason. What do you mean when you posit that Wong cinema cultivates an aesthetic of disturbance? How can we track this aesthetic of disturbance in Wong's films? Mm. Well. Um, That's a good question. Um, I mean, that's kind of one, uh, one of the broad theses of the, you know, encompassing the whole book that Wong Kar Wai f fosters an aesthetic of disturbance. And what I mean by that, that he seeks to complicate or complexify, if you like, uh, the viewing experience. Um, that he employs tactics of story and style to challenge the viewer's perception and comprehension of the action. Um, so on the one hand, his films are very sensuous and they can kind of seduce us with their, you know, um, uh, very sumptuous, lavish aesthetic. But on the other hand, they're difficult in some ways to process. Um, and each of the chapters tries to set out, you know, the various ways in which Wong Kar Wai complicates the viewer's experience and the viewer's activity. So um, so that, that he offers us a kind of, I think, cognitive challenge uh, that offsets the, the sort of uh, lush audio-visual design of the films, right? So on the one hand, he's seducing us, and on the other hand, he's kind of saying, you know, he's putting, keeping us at bay and... and trying to prevent us from uh, complete immersion or absorption in, in the drama. Um, I think he does that for, I think he adopts this aesthetic for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think he's, he wants to be distinctive, right? He wants to stand out. He wants to develop a style that is unlike any, anyone else's. Um, and, I think he knows, he's, he's a savvy filmmaker. I think he, he coveted the International Film Festival circuit and the market for art films. And he knows, you know, that, that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that directors with personal visions, you know, auteurs, um, always possess their own distinctive authorial signature. And Wong Kar Wai needed to find his. And it's, it's, it's developed over time. We can talk about that a bit later if you like, but it's but the principle of I think the principle of disturbance has remained a constant, even though he's um, you know moved away from certain stylistic techniques as his career has progressed. Nonetheless, he he hews to this basic aesthetic principle of disturbing the viewer's experience, even as he, even as he's trying to draw us in and seduce us with these you know luscious images and sounds. Um, So I think, you know, broadly, short answer is I think he's trying to balance kind of sensuous absorption with cognitive challenge. You argue that Wong's aesthetic of disturbance springs in large degree from Wong's work, routines and mode of production. 
could you please tell us a bit more about this idea? Yes. Um, I mean, again, it's, it's something I try and break down in each of the chapters. So each of the chapter focus, chapters focuses on a different stylistic parameter. Mm -hmm. um, and then more broadly, the chapters sort of fan out as they go on to take in wider context. So the first chapter is on uh, music, first main chapter, music design. Second chapter is on visual style. Third chapter is on narrative plotting. And then gets a bit broader and we, uh, the fourth chapter focuses on genre. Um, and I try to ex examine in each case how Wong Kar Wai's uh, working methods um, kind of inform the aesthetic that we end up with, right? That there is a kind of, not necessarily a deterministic relationship between his working methods, his, you know, his craft practices and the, the aesthetic, the finished aesthetic that we find in the films. But certainly I think the aesthetic is, is shaped by the work practices that, that he adopts. So, for example, um, in, in the first main chapter after the introduction on music, um, Wong Kar Wai begins pre-production by selecting pre-existing songs, right? Popular songs that have already been out, out in the ether, some of them for many years, right? Some of them are anachronistic. But he does that. He chooses his music early on in the pre-production stage. And music also shapes his casting decisions as well, right? So he often um, casts Asian pop idols, some of, some of whom whose music is heard on the soundtrack, actually, of his films. And he uses their personal histories, their actual biographical histories, as a basis for characterization. So music is already informing his aesthetic, right, right from the beginning, before shooting has even begun. Then during shooting, during shooting, he's uh, kind of unusual, I think, certainly among Hong Kong filmmakers, insofar as he plays music on the set, um, He says for a couple of reasons. One, to try to um, help the actors attain a certain emotion that they need for the scene that they're filming at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, all, and secondly, to uh, set or establish a kind of rhythm and tempo, both for the actors' movements in the scene and the cinematographer's movements or the cinematographer's movement of the camera, right? So the, the, the cinematographer, the director of photography can calibrate the movement of the of the camera to the tempo of the music. Um, so he's, just, he's unusual in, uh, uh, in relation to other Hong Kong filmmakers in that respect. But again, we see music infusing the, the, the working practices, the working methods. And then in post-production, he uses music to determine, again, to sort of establish the overall uh, tempo of the, of the imagery. And he's editing together sequences. So Wong's entire production process, from pre-production to post-production, Um, is imbued with a kind of musical sensibility. Uh, so I guess that's what I mean when saying that, you know, there are other examples too in relation to plotting, the way that Wong Kar Wai devises mm -hmm. his narratives and screenplays and how that operates. His working practices, I think, uh, shape in crucial ways uh, the aesthetics of the film. And I think that's something that culturalists often ignore because they're not, they're not really interested Uh, in the way the films are made. They're more interested in what the films mean. And that's okay, as I said before. But that's, in that's uh, when you're asking a different set of questions than the ones that interest me. 
Um, before we move on to the second chapter, um, I would like to 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 make um, a question. Um, your book focuses on two poetics domains: analytical poetics and poetics of effect. Not on historical poetics. Why did you prioritize these two domains of poetics to analyze one's films, uh, analytical poetics and and poetics of effect? <laughs> Well, I've, perhaps that's true that I've foregrounded those two domains most emphatically or most explicitly. I do feel that there is, that, I, that the sort of historical context is woven throughout the book, though. Um, I do try to relate, relate Wong Kar Wai's films to um, their, the, the historical context in which they're made most, most immediately, in which the films were made. Um, but also to earlier traditions of Hong Kong cinema. You know, the Shaw Brothers, Wu Sha films come in when I'm talking about uh, Ashes of Time, for example. Uh, the the tr tradition of the Cantonese melodrama or the Wen Yi Pian uh, is brought into the picture when I'm discussing In the Mood for Love. So I, I think it's there. The historical poetics is there. It might not be as, as I say, as explicit or as foregrounded as, as these other emphases. But... Um, You know, analytical poetics is is concerned primarily with, um, as I said, kind of uh, narrative form, and that's certainly that's certainly something I concentrate on. Stylistics as well when I'm talking, you know, writing about music and sound, um, and the effects on the viewer. You know, this sense, as I was saying before, about this this if this uh, viewing, I don't want to say position. <laughs> uh, Um, this viewing response whereby uh, we are, in a way, some critics say, hypnotized by the film, spellbound, mesmerized, right, sort of drawn in and uh, immersed in the films and at the same time challenged to uh, try to understand them, even at the basic story level. Sometimes they're quite confusing because of the way Wong Kar Wai organizes, you know, sound and image um, and narrative events. So, it, when it, so in that respect, I'm very much concerned with the spectator's activity as well. So I think it's probably true that those things are at the forefront of my inquiry, but I, I hope I haven't neglected historical poetics altogether. I tried not to. <laughs> well, um, now chapter two. Uh, chapter two is entitled Romantic Overtures, Music in Chunking Express. Why did you choose Shanking Express to start the study of uh, of this aspect of these analytical poetics in Wong's films? And why did you choose to analyze Wong's music in the first place? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I mean, I don't think you can. I don't think you could write a book on Wong Kar Wai and ignore his music <laughs> uh, because it's so salient. I mean, it's so it's such a prominent part of his authorial signature and of his film style, his film aesthetic. Um, Chunking Express. I mean, it's that's a good question. I chose it. I mean, this is we're going back a few years. I think I chose it partly because it's a familiar film to many readers, right? That they know Chunking Express and that it would be uh, a good kind of curtain raiser. And but more than that, I think more importantly than that, it's um, it's 
a really interesting film at the level of its its music score. It, it it's it's a very diverse score. I mean, some critics talk about talk about Wong's jukebox principle, right? The idea that it's a very diverse, eclectic <laughs> selection of songs that he's selected, um, and I think that's an apt label in as much as you know his music is often very culturally diverse. So there's Canto pop songs. Right, songs that are sung in the Cantonese dialect. There are covers of Western songs, Western pop songs. Uh, there's a specially, or- um, specially orchestrated score as well. So there's some or- original music in there too. So I think it's a mixture of, I, th- I just think it's a very a, a good example of Wong's musical practice. And um, in terms of why I chose to write about music at all, as I said, I think it's... Um, you. I think it's such a prominent part of his aesthetic that you can't, you just can't ignore it. Um, you know, if we think about, oh, if we compare it with, say, Hollywood music scores, the, uh, the claim often is that the classical Hollywood music score, you know, films from the Hollywood studio era, try to be uh, inaudible. They try to be, you know, have an effect on the viewer to shape the expressive um, quality of the action but they try not to call attention to themselves. It, the, music's, the music tries not to call attention to itself, right? It tries to be unobtr- unobtrusive and invisible and uh, inaudible. Whereas I'm suggesting that in Wong's films, right, the opposite principle obtains that, you know, if there's one kind of guiding principle uh, that he um, evolves for his musical engagement, his musical design, it's probably audibility, right? It's making music more and sound more generally, I guess, more probient rather than um, ambient. And that the music really acquires salience and and, um, claims our attention through various ways. Volume, right, it's often blasted out quite loudly, but uh, also repetition. So Chunking Express is a good example here because, as as you know, certain music cues, certain songs are repeated again and again in that film, California Dreaming, by the mamas and the papas, probably most uh, memorably. Um, the cultural otherness, cult, you know, if you have a Canto pop song, a Western song that's rendered with in, in Cantonese language, it claims our attention because it's familiar and strange at, at the same time, right? Sort of a familiar song has been defamiliarized. And other strategies. So I think that the music track comes forward as an object of attention in its own right, an, ob- an object of interest. Um, so, um, so I think it's uh, an important aspect of his of his films. It's also, I think, it, people remember it, remember the music, and you know, a couple of his films are named for songs. Right, the, the titles take their <laughs> take their names from uh, popular songs. In the mood for love, uh, happy together by the turtles. I mean, that's a that's a sign of the uh, of how important music is to uh, to Wong Kar Wai. And like I said um, before, it, it informs his um, production practices as well. So it's an important part of the way that he makes films. Yeah. Right. Um, you mentioned that the key issue in this chapter is authenticity. Uh, why do you consider mm. authenticity a late motif in Wong's films? Why is authenticity so crucial for both Wong and his protagonists? Mm. Yes, that's a good point. Well, I mean, this is yes another good reason why 
uh, Chunking Express, I think, is a good example to open the book with um, because it's about sort of thematically. <laughs> so now we're talking about what the film means. Uh, I think these, thematically it's, it's about characters who are phobic when it comes to change, right? That they're very much set in ro- their routines and they're, they're comfortable. Many, most of them are um, secure in their routines and rituals, you know, their everyday lives. And they find change something that, um, something challenging. And music, I think, is expressive of this, um, these sorts of traits or characteristics um, of the character. So, for example, California Dreaming, the song I mentioned earlier, is a song selected, it's diegeticized, if I can use a that term um it's motivated diegetically right it's it's chosen by a character in the story they they play it over and over on stereo so that's how the music that's why the music is so is is so prominent and repetitive because it's 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 presented as a kind of um uh what would you say almost an expression of mania or obsessiveness right on the part of the fate the fey one character but it's also it's also an expression of her interior state, her interiority. The fact that she is, the fact that she plays a song ad infinitum and repeat, it repeats it so obsessively, is indicative of her, of her, um, her um, what would you say, her, her reluctance to, uh, her, uh, what do I want to say here? I guess her, her, her willingness to, or her desire to keep change at bay. I'm sort of struggling to formulate this, but it's like she, she she's reluctant to take on new experiences. And the fact that she plays this song over and over again is a kind of expression of that or a symptom of that. But at the same time, almost paradoxically, um, that particular song signals her desire for change, right? She's because she literally dreams of California. <laughs> she wants to leave Hong Kong. She just doesn't have the courage yet, or she doesn't have the, the motivation yet. Um, so, uh, so, um, I think the the songs, in a way, function as a kind of subjective access. I mean, some of Wong Kar Wai's films have voiceover narration where the characters in the story tell us what they're thinking and feeling. And some of them don't. But in any case, the music tends to function um, communicatively of in relation to characters' subjective states, what they're thinking and feeling. Um, and that's important when, as often in Wong's films, his characters are taciturn, or reticent, right? They don't talk very much. They don't say out loud what they're thinking and feeling. Or in the case of, you know, famously Fallen Angels, where one of the characters is mute, he can't speak, and yet he's given a he's given a voiceover, <laughs> and you know, music, the songs that he selects or that are like motivically associated with him, are revel- revelatory of um, of you know his subjective experience, his dreams and desires and thoughts and so forth. And maybe that's what you say, that Wong Kar Wai not only adopts film music's traditional functions, but intensifies them. Could you explain mm. uh, this aesthetical fact and how it works in Wong's films, please? Yes. Well, I think he's, I think you're right. He's, he's, 
he's not um, jettisoning the standard conventions of, or, and functions of film music, right? So the, his music scores do the basic things. The, they perform the basic functions. They, they set the scene. They establish the mood of the scene. Um, they reinforce continuity over cuts or over, sequ- over scenes from one scene to the next. Um, they sometimes imply thematic meaning. As I said before, they sometimes provide subjective access to what a character is experiencing. Um, they're patterned often in light motivic fashion. So all of those are fairly conventional functions of film music. And Wong's music scores, his music tracks, um, you know, fulfill those those basic functions. But I think because music is so tied to the characters in his films, so closely tied to them, that it takes on an extra value in his in his universe, right? Uh, whereas I say the music kind of speaks for the characters or it compensates for their lack of outward expressivity. Um, um, so I think it, it, it acquires a greater significance, um, a greater burden of expression. And I have this term expressive displacement or exp- expressive diffusion where, so when character expressivity or subjectivity is not forthcoming, you know, they, they're not saying out loud what they feel or we can't read what they're thinking and feeling from their facial expressions, for example. The music right, tells us in, in, instead, right, in its stead, um, the, the burden of expression is dispersed or displaced. It falls onto other diegetic or stylistic um, devices such as a song or, a, you know, a stretch of music. Um, and I say that the music is tied so closely to the characters because... As I mentioned earlier, it's motivated, often motivated diegetically. The characters themselves choose the song that turns that ends up accompanying the scene. Um, <laughs> well, um, let's move on to chapter three. Um, chapter three is entitled "Partial Views: Visual Style and the Aesthetic of Disturbance." Um, you start this chapter comparing Wong Cinema to other remarkable filmmakers, remarkable Asian filmmakers. For instance, uh, Yasuhiro Su, Hao Xiaoxian, Tsai Ming Liang, Yang Shanke, or John Gu. What makes Wong different from them? Hmm. Well, um, well, Baldwell, again, um, describes Wong Kar Wai as a polystylistic filmmaker, right? That he's he's a filmmaker who embraces a range of different styles rather than one. I think you can identify, you know, we think of Ozu, for example, we associate him with a certain set of techniques, right? A certain set of stylistic and formal techniques. Same thing with John Woo. He, all of John Woo's films have a certain look to them and a certain feel, and they use certain, this, you know, a certain set of techniques. You can say the same of Ho Xiao Shen, right? The long take. Um, tableau aesthetic in his case um baldwell suggests that Wong Kar Wai is different in the sense that he's uh, a poly stylist and i think i think baldwell is broadly right about that um i mean one of the reasons we we encounter a range of stylistic approaches in in Wong cinema is that his his style was um being imitated uh, so widely by other filmmakers uh, um that especially in the 90s, but also also since then, that he needed to change his style because he was being, um, 
you know, the aesthetic that he developed in Chunking Express, I think in particular in 1994, was being aped, uh, certainly by other Hong Kong filmmakers, many Hong Kong filmmakers, but also filmmakers in other Asian industries, um, film industries. So he had to evolve his visual style. There were there were countless um, pastiches and parodies and rip-offs right, by other filmmakers of Wong's style. So that early style that has the step printing, uh, the smudge motion, um, the handheld cinematography, you know, the kinetic techniques that, that characterize Chunking Express and Fallen Angels um, was, was being so widely taken up by other filmmakers that Wong self-consciously shifted his aesthetic to a more sedate, uh, relatively restrained uh, visual style in Happy Together, and then I think to an even greater degree in, in In the Mood for Love. If you put In the Mood for Love next to Chunking Express, right, you might not know they're by the same director, maybe. I mean, uh, there, there, are, there are striking aesthetic differences between the two films. So what I try to suggest in, um, in this chapter is that while, while Wong Kar Wai is not wedded to specific visual techniques, right, he's not a long take, long shot director like Ho Xiao Shen. He's not a music video guy, even though some critics say he is. Um, he's not, um, you know, as, as, as tied to the sort of... Um, montage aesthetic that John Woo cultivates, right, the, con the constructive editing approach. Although he, he, he's not tied to a particular technique or set of techniques, he does, as I said before, cleave to this principle of visual design, and it's that one of disturbance, right? It's a one of that involves complicating or roughening, to use um, formalist parlance, <laughs> uh, the viewer's perception and, and, and comprehension of the image without sacrificing overall dramatic clarity. So we can still make sense of what's going on, but everything's a little harder to determine than it needs to be. Right? I think that that is a, a constant through Wong's films. So just to give you a brief example, um, you know, we have uh, off-center off framings, uh, canted framings, oblique framings, right? Images that are visually murky or indistinct, um, layered uh, kind of prismatic images in In the Mood for Love, for example, um, where, where shots seem to overlap or dissolve into each other, superimposed over each other. Um, images where we can't individuate the character that we're seeing. We can't tell if it's, you know, in, in the Mood for Love, we can't always tell if we're looking at Tony Leung's character or... Uh, Maggie Chung's husband, right? They, they could be either one. We can't make, we can't uh, clearly identify the character. Framings that crop off a character's head, right? So that we can only see their torso. Or back to camera framings where we only see the, the, the characters from behind. Um, or freeze frames that, that kind of perversely don't, um, don't capture anything concrete. So, for example, there's a shot, a freeze frame in Chunking Express of the Bridget Lin character, and she's just barely caught in the frame. She's kind of blurred. She's almost disappearing from view. We can't get a clear purchase on on the image and on the character that the image seeking to, you know, apparently seeking to show us. Um, so, so my claim is that yeah, his his 
the Wonka why indeed embraces stylistic pluralism, but that his films are unified by this enduring aesthetic principle of what I call disturbance, um, and that he lays down perceptual and cognitive challenges to the viewer. Not not every shot in a Wong Kar Wai film is, is difficult to process, right? They're not all like uh, the ones I just uh, described to you. But, you know, the, the roughening of the visual image, um, uh, it, it occurs frequently enough, I think, uh, throughout his career to qualify as a kind of major stylistic s- strategy and, and, and an authorial principle that unifies his films. So in answer to, <laughs> a long-winded way to answer your question, but um, you know what marks him off from what marks Wong Kar Wai's style off from, uh, say, John Woo's visual design and other Hong Kong filmmakers um, is that, and again, Baldwell has, has written about this in his book Planet Hong Kong, is that Hong Kong filmmakers, especially in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. And, and even going back a little further than that, um, they follow a principle of pictorial clarity. That's Baldwell's term, right? Which is uh, which is that um, you know the image is instant, instantly legible. We can we can clearly see everything of importance, right? Sometimes that's because the cuts come so fast that we need to be able to read the image, you know, in a in an instant before the next one comes along. That's the kind of Hong Kong uh, trademark, or one of them. But um, Wong Kar Wai, I think, in terms of his visual design, offers us offers us something different, right? A dynamic of pictorial clarity, but also of opacity, of opacity, right? So the overall visual design, um, the the sort of suite of images that can comprise a Wong Kar Wai film, may be kind of laminated in sensuousness uh, in a film like Two O Four Six, for example, but they also counterpose that that sensuousness and that pictorial legibility with shots and images that confound our perception and our comprehension. Right? Sometimes we just perceptually can't make out what's going on in in a shot. Um, so I think that's one of the key ways in which Wong's visual design, you know, stands out as distinctive against someone like John Woo and the other Hong Kong filmmakers. You know, Wong's contemporaries from Hong Kong. Let's move on to the next chapter, chapter four, Parallel Lives, Poetics of the Product. Let's move on <laughs> now to the next chapter, chapter four, Parallel Lives, Poetics of the Post-Production Plot. Um, in this chapter, you turn to the formal principles of Wong's storytelling, and you argue that his films display robust formal unity. Could you please develop this idea? Hmm. Yes. Well, some even some of Wong Kar Wai's admirers, right, not just his detractors, say that his plots are incoherent, um, that they're or that they're loosely plotted, or that they're devoid of plot altogether. <laughs> they just say, you know, these films are basically empty style, right? They're all surface and not, no, they don't offer anything substantive. Um, and some critics, particularly those I think of a postmodernist stripe, argue that Wong's films are incoherent at the level of plot. They're just too fragmented. Um, they're too kind of randomly or or haphazardly organized. 
um, to be taken seriously as um, you know narratively unified works of storytelling. So I try to argue that that perspective is <laughs> is flat wrong, um, and um, that in fact even a film that that looks thin on plot or that looks kind of aleatory in its narrative design or narrative architecture is actually quite tightly um, quite tightly plotted and quite cohesive. Um, uh, so I, you know, the, the idea that the, the story itself um, displays, I guess you would call it organic unity, that it has a, it has a logic to the way that it's organized and it's not as, um, as purely improvisatory as it might seem at first glance. Um, and again, I sort of going back to your earlier question about working methods. I mean, I suggest here that the architecture of Wong's narratives is shaped by his production practices and his working, you know, his working methods. Um, so in the 1990s in particular, he would often launch production with only the, the sort of bare <laughs> rudiments of the story, you know, a very sketchy outline of the story, um, some character descriptions, a few lines of dialogue. Um, and then on the day of shooting, um, the actors would film uh, variations on scenes that were worked out only days or hours before. Uh, and that was very much the Hong Kong method. So this is another way in which Wong Kar Wai, you know, exemplifies um, Hong Kong cinema's methods of scripting and shooting in that in that period right in the, in the, in the 90s in particular um, and the plot itself the plot of Wong's films only really uh, begins to crystallize in post-production in post-production editing um, so along with his editor Wong may consign you know entire plot lines to the cutting room floor right um, you know scenes might be reordered I mean that's fairly typical reordering of scenes and seeing you know where they're best placed. But he does that over and over again. Uh, characters might be eliminated altogether. Uh, sometimes major stars are dropped from the film in, in the post-production stage. Um, so the narrative's shape and structure is, is um, repeatedly fine-tuned until quite notoriously late in the film's production schedule. Um, so I call this approach post-production plotting, <laughs> probably self-evidently, uh, you know, since since only in the latter stages of, of, uh, of uh, post-production um, does the, f the finished plot really come into focus. There is an interesting subchapter called Fabula, Suchet and Narration. Could you please describe these aspects of one's narrative style? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that those two terms, Fabula and Suchet, come from the Russian formalists. They roughly, uh, roughly denote the difference between story and plot. And um, one of the things I tried to demonstrate in this chapter is that Wong's films are, um, you know, artistically interesting because he clearly has a fascination with uh, narrative form and experimenting with plotting, right? So not just the story as it unfolds chronologically in sequence from point A to point B, but uh, how the story is told. And that's when we get to the issue of narration. Um, So, for example, Chunking Express um, presents two main plot lines, but rather than alternating between the two plot lines, uh, you know, in a conventional way, having them unfold simultaneously, roughly, 
one presents the two plot lines successively, one after the other. Um, so we're introduced to one set of characters and one situation in the first half of the film, and then abruptly, you know, those characters are abandoned, and Wong introduces a new set of characters and a new scenario. Um, that that comes to the fore in the second half of the film. Um, to take another example, I mean, that's a fairly unconventional way of plotting the story, right? Um, another example might be 2046, sort of sci-fi film, but that's plotted as a kind of puzzle film. Um, and it juxtaposes a storyline set in the 1960s with another line of action set in you know, decades in, in the future. Um Days of Being Wild, you know, is a, introduces a brand brand new character played by Tony Leung um, with, that we haven't seen before, right? Uh, at the coda of the film, at the very end, we don't know how he relates to the everything we've seen prior to the last, the very last moments of the film. We don't know who he is. It's never explained, right? Uh, so there are many examples uh, of kind of narrative complexity and ambiguity in uh, in Wong cinema, so I think we can look at narrative and plotting, um, you know, as one dimension of Wong's films, in which we find that kind of cognitive challenge that I mentioned earlier, that, that creates a tension with the the purely sensuous and seductive qualities of Wong's work. Um, and I focused as a kind of primary case study in this chapter on Fallen Angels. Um, and I chose that film because I wanted to explore uh, Wong's narrative strategies in a film that most critics consider to be, you know, a purely stylistic exercise, right? This is one of those films where they say, there's no story. <laughs> it's all kind of superficial style. And uh, so I thought, well, there must be some kind of story. And what, you know, how, what is it? And how is it organized? And, uh, and so I think that on closer inspection, what we find is, it's fairly characteristic of Wong's films, which is, you know, psychologically complex characterization, uh, characters that are complicated and conflicted, kind of internally conflicted, um, and an adventurous kind of parallel plot structure that f functions to bring out the affinities as well as the, the differences between the characters in each line of action. Um, and again, an overall commitment to formal unity, which you mentioned before, right? There is a kind of um, narrative cohesiveness to the overall narrative structure that might not be apparent on first viewing. But when you look closely, you see how carefully plotted the film actually is. Well, let's move on to the, to the next chapter, chapter five, frustrating formulas, popular genre, and in the mood for love. Um, this chapter centers on Wong's controversial engagement with popular genre. Uh, could you explain his engagement with popular genre, please? Hmm. Well, I think he's, on one hand, he's a popular filmmaker, right? Although he has, we often think of him as an art cinema filmmaker with an art cinema sensibility. He is, to some extent, immersed in popular cultural forms. As we said before, he, he appropriates pop songs, pop music for his soundtracks. He often employs pop idols and casts them in, you know, key roles. Uh, and another, another dimension of this engagement with popular cultural forms is his embrace of popular genres. 
Um, now, there are economic reasons why he should uh, uh, gravitate toward popular forms. Obviously, it helps gain financing for his productions, having bankable stars, right? having a pre-sold music score, and, um, and parading on the surface of his films, at least, popular genre ingredients and conventions, you know, that are familiar to audiences worldwide. But to answer your question, I think that his engagement with genre is an irreverent one. I think he has a, an irreverent attitude toward popular genre. So just as he is uh, apt to disturb other dimensions of story and style, as we've been saying, so he wants to subject popular genre conventions to revision and experimentation. Um, and that's what this chapter focuses on. So, um, you know, I think if we if we if we if we describe or consider Wong Kar Wai as a polystylistic filmmaker, I think he's also pretty promiscuous when it comes to genre as well, right? So, uh, you know, his his first film, as tears go by, is a kind of triad gangster heroic bloodshed film. Days of Being Wild is a period melodrama. Ashes of Time is a Wu Pian swordplay film. Chunking Express is a kind of romantic comedy, I guess. Happy Together is a gay road movie. You know, In a Mood for Love is a period melodrama. 2046 is a sci-fi film. Uh, My Blueberry Nights is an American road movie. And The Grandmaster is a kung fu martial arts biopic. Um, so he does this kind of genre hopping. But that's, f- again, it's, it's, it's a distinctive quality for Wong Kar Wai, but it's also fairly characteristic of... Um, the kind of international auteur who is also a cinephile, right? Sort of loud and proud, a cineast, a, a film enthusiast. Um, so think of Tarantino and Scorsese and, you know, uh, uh, Truffaut. And if, in Hong Kong, think of Johnny Doe and even Anne Hoy. Um, the point is that each different genre provides Wong and the other filmmakers that I've mentioned um, a different context in which to explore and um, express their their auteurist preoccupations, right? And to display their love of cinema, and their and, and their love of and passion for storytelling of all varieties, right? Of all genres. Um, so I think that's it. I think it's a kind of uh, he's he's he respects genre, but he's not in thrall of genre. He likes to tweak the conventions. He likes to roughen the form the, and the formulas, you know. Mm. And why did you choose uh, In the Wound for Love uh, for this chapter in particular? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I think it's an interesting film from, a, from the perspective of genre. I think in a way it's a kind of, it serves as a kind of illustrative case, a representative example. Right? Um, my claim about the film is perhaps a little eccentric. Uh, but broadly, I try to suggest that um, In the Mood for Love is ostensibly a romantic melodrama, but in fact operates according to the codes of detective fiction. Right? And that's why I think it's an unusual kind of an, a film to study from the perspective of genre, because it's hybridizing in a sort of stealthy way <laughs> at least two distinct genres. Um, so I start by saying that, you know, if In the Mood for Love is... Uh, indeed, a melodrama, as it appears to be on the surface, um, it it dampens or subdues or um, flouts, in some cases, the norms of of melodramatic narrative in in striking ways. So there's none of the 
the dramatic conflict that's ingredient to the genre. Um, and there could be, right? Because this is a story. Uh, the film is a story about two people, Tony Leung and Maggie Jung, who discover that their respective spouses are having uh, a love affair right, with each other. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you would think that the stage is set for uh, melodramatic confrontations, um, you know, histrionic outbursts, theatrical displays of emotion and so on. All the things we think of and expect of, uh, of melodrama. But Wong Kawai roundly rejects um, the sort of excess that's customary to the to the melodrama and he 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 relegates the adulterous spouses to the fringes of the plot right we hardly see them <laughs> they barely figure in the drama at all i mean they're, they're mentioned often but they don't they're, they're seldom glimpsed um they're essentially banished from the film and we watch as tony lung's character and maggie jung um in you know in their sadness and loneliness begin to fall in love with each other um, and I think this is this will bring me back to uh, to a question I, I realized I didn't answer before <laughs> that you asked me. I must have gone off on a sort of meandering uh, digression, so apologies. But um, you know, there's a way in which I think in in uh, in Wong in many of Wong's films that the two character the, the two characters in In the Mood for Love and many of his other protagonists in other films struggle to live authentic lives. You asked me about authenticity before. Um, and this film, In the Mood for Love, is set in 19, 1960s Hong Kong, um, when adultery and divorce were, you know, um, antithetical to the social mores of the of the time. And um, as this film progresses, Tony Leung and Maggie Jung have to kind of wrestle with their own authentic desires, right, which is to be with each other romantically versus their responsibility as social subjects, um, uh, the responsibility as, as social citizens to observe the proprieties of their, of their milieu. Uh, I won't spoil anything for your listeners, but you know, let's, let's just say that the, uh, the, the film departs from melodramatic convention to a certain extent uh, you know, as it reaches its, its, its climax. Um, but anyhow, my take on In the Mood for Love is that it gives... Wong's um, penchant for uh, genre hybridity, full full play, full expression, and that there's a detective framework, a detective genre framework, uh, lurking beneath the surface melodrama of the movie, and um, and I try to show that you know detective ingredients permeate um, the whole film in a more or less in more or less overt or, or tacit ways um, from the narrative situation to um, the visual iconography and most um, emphatically I think through the, the mode of narration that Wong deploys to convey you know this story of, of forbidden desire. Well let's move on to the last chapter, uh, chapter six, appropriation, reflections and future directions. Um, in, in this chapter, you isolate and review the book's major claims and reiterate the importance of a poetic's approach to Wong's films. Um, could you please uh, tell us uh, briefly about uh, these final conclusions? Yes. Uh, well, like you say, I conclude with some general reflections on the poetic's approach. 
on the Hong Kong film industry as well as it as it's evolved in the last well, that time, you know, in, in the last uh, ten years or so in the twenty first century, because there has been some pretty major changes to the to the Hong Kong film industry in that time. And I also try to reflect a bit on on Wong's present and future status, and I engage a bit with that question that I mentioned earlier over Hong Kong. Um, sorry, over Wong Kar-wai's identity as a Hong Kong filmmaker, or as a or as a greater China filmmaker, or as an international filmmaker. You know, where how is he best um, uh, categorized? I also try to um, offer. A, an analysis of Wong's most recent film, The Grandmaster. So I take a little time to to uh, devote uh, some analysis of, to that, uh, of that film. And then, you know, stepping back, coming up for air, trying to get a sense of the broader context, I, uh, I give a kind of precy of the uh, influence that Wong has had on other filmmakers, the various types of appropriation by other filmmakers of his work, right? So there have been, as I've, as I've mentioned um, before, uh, while we've been talking, there are many local imitators of Wong's style, um, often in the form of parody, you know, send-ups of Wong Kar-wai's slow motion or smudge motion techniques, or the, the dead time, the longers that characterize many of his films, uh, the romanticism. There are, there, there are quotations, but basically send-ups, or, or lampooning, uh, lampooning of Wong Kar Wai's, um, you know, sort of uh, more famous uh, sequences and images, uh, but also some pastiches. There's a film called The Drunkard by Freddie Wong, which is filmed very much straight in the Wong Kar Wai style. And there are also imitators from other Asian territories as well, and they're still happening. I've seen a couple of films in the last month that are very, mu- very much owe a debt to Wong Kar Wai's. Uh, uh, specifically in the mood for love, I think in particular, and then I I uh, point out some instances of global homage, you might say, uh, so filmmakers outside of Asia that have uh, acknowledged a debt to to Wong Kar Wai's films. So Sophia Coppola's Lost in Translation is one such film, and I think she even even acknowledged Wong Kar Wai in her Oscar acceptance speech. <laughs> uh, that you know the, the influence that In the Mood for Love had on that, her film. Um, Javier Dolan's Heartbeats, Abbas Kurastami's certified copy, as well. Um, I think you can see the influence of especially In the Mood for Love in all of those films and many more besides. So it's just another way of trying to um, demonstrate, I guess or give evidence of Wong's esteem and influence and importance on the world film stage. You know, he's in, in, in a way, he's so much more than just a Hong Kong filmmaker, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. Uh, but, you know, he's, the breadth of his influence far exceeds and transcends this very small local film industry from which he derived, you know, from which he emerged. <laughs> Well, Dr. Bettinson, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we end our interview, I wonder if you could tell us about what research projects you are working on now. Yes, thank you. Um, well, I'm, I've always given myself permission to kind of toggle between projects about Chinese language cinema and projects about, about Hollywood film, as I said earlier. So I have a, a book coming out in December, which is a collection of interviews that Otto Preminger Uh, gave throughout his career 
Um, that book is, is part of the Conversations with uh, Filmmakers series um, published by University Press of Mississippi. Uh, I've recently f um, finished a, a research article on the direct Hollywood director Sidney Lumet, and that's in, in press as well. On the Hong Kong side, um, I've just finished a book chapter on Anne Hoy, um, and I'm currently working on a chapter about Benny Chan, who's a kind of action filmmaker. And those two directors couldn't be more dissimilar. Right? Um, Anne Hoy is much more oriented to, you know, personal dramas and melodramas, you know, films with a social realist edge shot in a quasi-documentary style, whereas Benny Chan is a, you know, full-bore uh, mainstream action guy, a very skillful director, I think, but, you know, one whose tastes are um, firmly rooted in Hong Kong's popular tradition of, you know, gunplay action and, and, and martial arts. Um, so it feels like doing a sharp 180, you know, going straight from Hoi into Chan, but, uh, but that's... Uh, you know, part of the thrill of, of, of researching Hong Kong cinema. It's, uh, it's an endlessly rich and uh, diverse cinema. Um, you know, Hong Kong cinema, for good reason, is often taken to be synonymous with the action genre and genres. Uh, but, you know, it's a far more varied and, and multifaceted cinema than that. And uh, as I say, it's very rewarding to really uh, mine it for its, uh, its numerous treasures. <laughs> Well, great. I'm really looking forward to reading your, your new works. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Dr. Bettinson. All the luck and success for what is coming. Thank you, Gustavo, and to you. Thank you. <laughs>